welcome to Eventful, the podcast for meeting professionals. I'm your host, Lauren Edelstein with North Star Meetings Group. Eventful, the podcast, is our way of inviting you to join some of the interesting conversations we have with people in our business about topics that really should be on your radar. I look forward to hearing what you think, and please be sure to subscribe. COVID-19 has upended many companies' plans for group gatherings, leaving meeting planners eager for answers on when they might be able to hold events in person again and the associated risks with doing so. During the recent Global Incentive Summit Digital hosted by North Star Meetings Group, attendees were able to gather some of these insights from a risk management expert. Bruce McIndoe, president of McIndoe Risk Advisory LLC and founder of WorldAware, shared the latest travel facts, figures, and resources to help planners confidently promote group travel to their stakeholders and clients. On this episode of Eventful, the podcast for meeting professionals, we share these insights. I wanted to talk about two things. One is Europe is well into the second wave. We are entering pretty aggressively here with 100,000 cases a day. Europe is struggling. The number of deaths are up 43% in Europe. And so whether it's Germany, Italy, UK, all around, it's, it's been a challenge. On the positive side is mask usage and, and, and the suppression activities are actually reducing the flu incidence in the United States. And so that's hugely helpful, but it's still additive to the challenge in hospitals. So uh, the other part of it is, of course, we're all waiting for the vaccine to appear on the horizon and, and front and center. And it's, it's you know, not going to be a silver bullet. And this is the challenge. And this is what lays into the airline industry, the incentive industry, everyone looking at two to three, four year glide to recovery. And so a lot of data here, but basically the top part is making assumptions worldwide. It's going to take three and a half to four years at best to distribute the vaccine globally. Here in the United States, both the pharma companies as well as uh, DHHS and CDC setting expectations that the average uh, citizen will not see the vaccine until well through the second quarter, probably early Q3 of 2021. And, uh, and, and what the efficacy and the capability of these vaccines obviously are still in testing but the, the, the threshold is what they call 50% of effectiveness or efficacy. That means that if you take the vaccine, then 50% of the people will have some level of protection and 50% of people won't. It's a, it's a, it's a, it takes a big dent in protecting people, but it's not perfect. And so, oops, so we're really going to have to continue to manage our way through this, and this is where the good news starts, because we are starting to see uh, all parties, governments, industry, and individuals really understanding that they have a role and tools in their toolbox now, even pre-vaccine, to really start not globally everything back to normal, but, but in in tra travel corridors or, or country destination country bubbles, 
in really managing this to an acceptable level of risk. And that's what everyone is working aggressively on as we speak. So I think the most important thing is, and this has been stated by World Health Organization, this has been stated by the European CDC and others, that we have the tools to deal with this if they are deployed aggressively and comprehensively, uh, which is the key thing. And again, I talked about a vaccine. The vaccines that are coming forward are provide 50% protection essentially from the virus. And these layered things that we're doing, like wearing a mask, that reduces your risk 77%. Social distancing, obviously being away from infected people a little bit better. Cleaning hands and surfaces is about 66%. So when you start doing all of these things together, you substantially reduce the overall risk of one contracting and especially transmitting the the virus. The most important thing, and this is important for meeting planners and others that are working with groups, is the challenge that we have is you want to minimize having large numbers of people in closed spaces, especially if they're not wearing masks or other suppression technology is is the biggest issue. And that's really hard when we're trying to bring groups together. How do we do that? And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, or actually a lot about that here in a minute. So, But the other two key things for group meetings and incentive and destination uh, countries is, is reliable and timely testing and rapid contact tracing. And that's been missing, for example, here in the United States. It's been very aggressive in New Zealand and China and elsewhere that have really done a great job of almost full suppression of this virus transmission. And so those are the things that you want to look at in your destinations and say, how well are the governments in those destinations or in designated areas of those destination countries managing those two activities? If they're doing a great job, then they can really reduce risk to your participants going to a particular destination. So if we think about governments then from both the origin and the destination of your groups, obviously if they're doing mandatory mask usage, if they have a testing protocol that eliminates or substantially reduces the 14-day quarantine, if they're supporting uh, social distancing and focusing on enhanced air ventilation filtering in in bars and restaurants and obviously the cleansing protocols that we've seen come online with throughout the supplier component of travel and then i talked about the infection control at the destination this is what you want to be seeing with your partners and government around really standardizing these activities and this is what's got to happen as we get through the end of this year going into 2021, that travelers and participants feel comfortable and trusting that all of this is happening. And so you're going to start seeing more standard kind of harmonized tools like these common pass and things like this that will enable someone to get a COVID test and have it registered so that all of the participants that are going to be dealing with that 
individual, whether it's on the airline, whether it's on ground, whether it's at the destination, can have confidence that this person uh, has been tested in the last X hours, right? So, so it's going to be important that that data becomes kind of do it once and share it with everyone that's involved so that we can keep track of and lower any incidence of transmission. The other thing that I get quite a bit as a risk manager is, is angst about going on an airplane. And this is a, typically an airplane dying as a result of an airplane crash is about one in 10 million. So incredibly low odds in that case. But MIT did a study about COVID transmission in, in flight, and there's been actual data. The Australians and others have done data in looking at transmission and fatalities of, of people traveling in, a, in an airplane. And, and, and basically, it's about one and a half a million. If, if, you basic, if you do basic mask wearing and obviously the ventilation in an airplane, and it's, you have to c- contrast that every time you jump in your car uh, in the United States and in Europe, it's about typically a tip about the same, about one in 28,000 to one in 43,000 for Europe. But roughly one in 37,000 every day when you get in your vehicle, that's the risk that you're taking uh, when driving on roads in the United States. So the airplane is, is not the weakest link uh, in this whole process. Uh, it's actually the humans we'll get to and, and how they interact with other humans, either in the source of where they're coming from, in the route when they're moving through the transportation system, and then obviously in your destination. So a big part of this, obviously, is you have regulations, but industry is the ones that have to pay for them. And, uh, and so we're seeing more companies coming online to do audits for compliance around the cleansing protocols and, and other testing protocols and those kinds of things. So expect to see more where you can leverage that and destinations will be able to leverage these compliance audits by third parties to make sure that your participants feel comfortable that they actually are happening. And we're seeing massive investment, obviously, in touchless technology and, 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 and lots and lots of venues, whether they're theaters, whether they're bars, whether they're restaurants, are putting in enhanced air circulation filtering systems where they're turning over the air in those facilities three, four, five times per hour which is substantially you know, more than they've been doing, again, to get their businesses back online. So these are the key thing. And for the industry suppliers, educating and monitoring for these practices to actually happen is important, not only to your staff, but also encouraging your guests and travelers to comply with them as, as well. And we have been, and I see this every day, that, that industry competitors are sharing best practices and what they're learning. And so it really is great that the industry is coming together. So I talked about the individual and I said, right now, people are the weakest link in this whole activity. It tends to be, especially I was just at a, a, a hybrid conference in Utah last week. And 95, 98% of the time, people are doing the right thing. But as the night wears on and the drinks are flowing and people want to do karaoke, they drop their guard. 
And it's just that little bit of kind of weakness that suddenly uh, puts people at risk. And so when you're, when you're doing programs, you have to try to set up programs and, and try to set up environments to try to help people to do the right thing 24-7. So, and so all of these have been beat into us for the last 10 months and will continue to be, but, but it's the, the destination and incentive planner and, and the people that are actually running it to make sure that they put, create an environment that encourages these activities. So I'm going to just take a few minutes here and actually walk through some practical things to think about as we go through what I call the journey management of travel or incentive travel. And of course, going from preparation from your home, ground transportation to whether it's air, ship, train, once you get to your destination, public or, or group arranged uh, transport to the destination, and then the reverse back home. So let's just talk quickly about some of the things that are important in each one of these. Of course, it starts right from the beginning, and that is for the individual to be honest about are they really ready and, and well enough to be traveling. And it's a very difficult decision for someone that may just be feeling not great and, and feel like, oh, this is just a temporary thing, or it's a little cold, or I have allergies or whatever, and to push on with the trip. And, and so when we look at the data, a lot of times people actually did not feel well, did not get tremendously sick, but were carrying the virus. And that's the most. And of course, those that have no very little or no uh, symptoms, asymptomatic are the ones that are most difficult because they truly don't feel bad at all, but yet they're still infected. So for doing this, most organizations, and I think as we're going to be getting uh, more of this online as we go into 2021, we will see a pre-departure testing protocol, whether it's done from a lab from before you leave home or when you arrive at the airport with a rapid test. But to create these corridors and these kind of origin destination bubbles for example, between the U.S. and Hawaii or the U.S. and Aruba or the Bahamas or Ireland or whatever it may be, there will be some level of testing done to say, okay, you're now entering this journey management and we want to have kind of an initial assessment of your, of your wellness and, and, and whether you are actively infected. So that's going to be a big piece of this, just the starting point. Then obviously when you're on the ground, most people that are leaving home are going to take personal automobile or they're going to take a shared service or a taxi or a limo service. Uh, and so the risk there is very low. Of course, you should expect people to be wearing masks. The driver, vent your windows if you want to, extra protection would be your personal responsibility. For group managers that are putting shuttles out there, maintaining kind of 50% type of capacity on that shuttle, trying to organize people that are traveling together to, to, to travel together on ground transport. But you should also record the passengers and the driver of every, of every shuttle transfer so that you can have the opportunity to go back. For example, my father, 90 years old, 
went to uh, vote. He was at a retirement community and was on the bus to take him to the voting center. And then about 12 hours later, they notified us that the driver had was infected and uh, was positive test. And But yet they knew everyone that was on the bus with that driver and were able to notify us and, of course, quarantine him. And so that's how that works and how it's so important for not only the, the participants, but also if they're going back home to be aware that they were exposed. Of course, on the air side, the, on the flight, you have to go through the airport. And, and most people, again, and this is all about maintaining distance and, and, and the time that you're spending in close proximity of others. So if you can avoid or minimize the amount of time that you're in the food courts and bars and bathrooms, especially bathrooms, that's really, really important. But of course, on a long trip, you've got to do it. So again, get in, do what you need to do and get out. So for a food court, get it to go. When I traveled, I just found a quiet gate that wasn't being used. And I sat down and I ate my lunch, uh, you know, by myself there. And it was, you know, fine. That's, you know, best I can do. And versus sitting down in a food court with 50 or 60 other people. And of course, at the destination, uh, I think we're going to be seeing more and more protocols around testing for groups at destinations as a, a best practice, not only for the planner that's, that's doing the destination program, but also likely the destination government as well is going to want to keep an eye on people that have come in from outside the bubble and, and, and checking on them and making sure uh, that they are still healthy and not transmitters of the virus. The challenge that we have about testing is that you can be have been infected, have an infectious dose, and it takes two to three days to get enough viral load in your body to trigger a positive test. And it's that weak link of two or three days that really foul up the whole testing, right? So some countries are eliminating the 14-day quarantine, but still require a two to three-day buffer. And typically, if they're really tight, you'll take a test negative, two or three days, they'll take another test. If it's negative, you're good to go. Well, adding two to three days at each end of, of an incentive travel program is quite difficult. So this is why having a common system so you can rely on other testing and activity monitoring in that person independent of your program, but more broadly of them as individuals will make a lot of difference. And obviously, there's going to be the need to stay on site or at the resort and kind of manage how much movement people are doing. And if they are moving to destination points outside of kind of the resort area or the, or the hotel facility, that that's managed in a way that there's little or no interaction with third parties. And that's all part of the planning and selecting activities, especially outdoors, where you can maintain masks and distance and sanitation at all times and keep that infection transmission low. So with that, my, my bottom line is that by doing these things and getting government and industry aligned and working together, we can see our way through this. We can start you know, having meetings and managing meetings and, and slowly crawl back to getting people having fun again. I love seeing that video of Ireland. And it's like, when I see that, I want to go. So <laughs> I'll be front and center.
So thanks, Lisa. I don't, hopefully there'll be some questions and we can dig in a little deeper. Hi, Bruce. Thanks so much for that. That was terrific. I I should have been taking notes. I'm glad I'm going to, I have a copy of what you slides and I'm sure we can share them with anybody who sure. needs them. Absolutely. But we did get some questions and I will also want to encourage the audience to please send more because we have an opportunity to get this advice from Bruce and it, it's all really valuable and current. One question we had was when the vaccine's here, uh, what will the typical meeting look like? Will we still have to wear masks, six foot distancing and restrictions of people in rooms? Yeah, I always hate to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> the vaccine is largely designed for protection. Uh, masks are actually designed, that protocol is designed to reduce transmission. So you wearing a mask is actually protecting others. You taking a vaccine is actually protecting you, okay? So when you think about that, okay, if the vaccine has 50, 60% efficacy, that means still 40 or 50% of people can still be dangerous to other people. So the answer is the vaccine will help lower the level of people that are getting infected and dying. It's not going to have a significant change in transmission and we will have to continue to have masks and, and social distancing. So, Sorry. Oh, bad news, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's useful for us. We, we need it. We need it. Yeah. Um, but as we, but as we tamp this down and this is why it's a whole system. I mean, if you look at New Zealand, if you look at China, if you really can work this as a holistic system and you have aggressive testing and tracing to shut down the transmission you can get back to a more normal life of not having to wear masks all the time and those kinds of things. But there, it's, it's, it's A or B. In between, you're in this zone that you just have to deal with it. So we have to get a lot more aggressive and we can solve this. And that's why those destinations are going to matter. And, and I, I believe that those destinations that really want to be frontline of incentive planners and meeting planners to get their business are the destinations that are going to be just super aggressive in shutting this down to virtually no transmission so that people are very comfortable coming there and letting their guard down. It's interesting you mentioned that because in our, we just did a study that's coming out next week for incentive. And it was mentioned that the safety of a destination and or venue was much more important to planners than whether or not a vaccine was available. And it was kind of surprising. Does that surprise you at all? Or Not at all, no. especially given what we've talked about. And one, the availability of the vaccine internationally is, is out there. It's, and we need to get back to travel. We need to get back to business long before a global vaccine is going to tamp this thing down. Because obviously the weakest link is the next airplane that comes from DRC or from Indonesia or whatever and goes into a population that's not protected or is only partially protected, then you're right back at it again. So it's important that all of these things be worked. But we have the tools today to manage this at a level that likely will be better than these first vaccines. Okay, another question we have now is, can we or should we require our attendees to provide a negative COVID test before traveling to our events, even if it's not required by the destination? 
you know, that's it's a really hard thing. The, obviously, as a risk manager and, and trying to control this, the answer is sure, absolutely. It would be great that if you had a COVID test two to three days before departure and a commitment on their part to minimize any kind of interaction outside of their bubble, right? So they're not going to a bar or whatever. So kind of doing that front end work for you to not kind of elongate the amount of time that they have to sit in a hotel somewhere, right? So that's that would be great. And as testing comes down on in cost, and right now it ranges between $65 and $120 range kind of in there, that's that's and it's I think it's really important message to all the people that are going to be coming together from all different places to your destination to say, look, all of these people complied with as best they can are negative before they come. So I'm saying is it's a good idea. It's good messaging. But cost and time and commitment is one that they have to weigh with their group. I was going to say, and even for an incentive group, you don't want them to incur their own costs. So they, the sponsor would probably have to factor that in. But sure. it is time and they have to go yeah. to the clinic. And so. Of course. Okay. We have a couple more coming in now. Any idea when the fast tests will be widely available so that we can test the attendees upon arrival? I read that they'll be cost-effective, like maybe around $10. Have you heard this? So there's an adage in life. Do you want it good or fast? <laughs> or you get what you pay for. <laughs> well, you get what you pay for. So the, the answer is the, the big challenge with testing is are all of the elements that go into the test. So the reagents is the main kind of short pole in the tent and really ramping up manufacturing. I, I would think early 2021, we will see substantial volume of rapid tests, antigen tests, available because I see that happening and, and and companies are really ramping up to get that out there because, because of what we're talking about, right? We're talking about an incentive group going for, let's say, five days and we're going to do maybe a test every other day on that whole group times everybody running around the globe. So we need a lot of testing, right? So that's that part of it. The PCR tests, the, the kind of and RNA, the, 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 the detailed test, which is much more reliable, takes more time and is more expensive, right? So you have to weigh, am I really just trying to do a sampling and kind of keeping an eye on the group? Then the fast tests are fine. We're going to see that with airports and airplane you know, carriers. But for, for organizations that really need to nail it, like hospitals and retirement centers and those kinds of things, they're still going to have to rely on the the more expensive PCR tests, but it will, they will be hugely helpful. Again, early next year, I think we'll see much more availability. Okay. We only have about two more minutes, but okay. I, there's, a couple, there's a couple more questions. They're coming right. in. I'm, thank you for sending them. These are all great. Here's, here's one. What about group sizes? Do you think they should be limited to a certain number? Again, uh, so the answer is your ability to manage the group. Right. And your manage your ability to deal with them in an environment where you want good social distancing, where you want good air turnover and those kinds of things. So I would say it has more to do with the facilities and what are the things that you're trying to do than group size. Right. Mm -hmm. But reality is you might have typically taken 30 people or 25 or 30 people on a bus tour and done a bunch of things. Well, 
Now you're going to do 15 people on the bus, but maybe you have two buses, right? So you can still do it, but now your cost of transportation is 2x, right? And that's that's the trade-off. And sure. fortunately for incentive planners and for the sponsors, they're going to have to pay the same dollars for less people, or they're going to have to pay more dollars to get the, the same amount of people that they did you know, before is, is going to be the economics. It just has to be. Okay. All right. One last question. And th- this is interesting because I think this has been on everybody's mind recently with the middle seat question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is, this is true. Do you think that the second wave with the second waves that that's, is happening right now, that airlines might go back to blocking the middle seat? No. <laughs> okay. The, uh, so the bottom line is the airlines are looking at the data. They're looking at the, the rates of their own flight attendants getting infected, which is incredibly low. They are understanding and they're having more and more data proving that transmission on a flight of you know shorter duration, more so, longer duration, less so, but the bottom line is transmission on the flight is very, very low risk. So they're looking at their own financials and pushing those birds around saying, look, leaving the middle seat is not significantly safer. And what, what I'm seeing is two things. One is that some programs are actually paying and buying that second seat and some airlines like Republic are allowing people to pay an extra $60 or $80 to make sure that they have an empty seat. And when you add the two seats together, you have at least enough yield there to, to help cover the cost. So, so we'll, I think we'll see more and more of that. But at the end of the day, I see that going away. Okay. Well, thanks, Bruce. We, sure. we have more questions, but we have to cut you off right now uh, to move on to our next segment. But we could be sitting here all day asking you. This yeah, my question. pleasure. And any questions you want to send my way, I'm always happy to answer them and you can send them back out. Okay, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us and check back for new episodes soon.